Jericho Road is a podcast and a Sunday school class and a ministry of St. Luke's Episcopal Church in Birmingham, Alabama. These days, we're looking at the whole Bible through the lens of living water, and we hope you'll join us. Well, hey, everybody, welcome back to Living Water, where in this podcast, we're looking at Bible stories through the lens of water or trying to find water in a surprising corner to give it some new meaning or to give it some color. I'm finding over these episodes that once you see water, you can't unsee it. It's water seems to be everywhere. And this story is certainly true. Now, today's story is from the Gospel of John. And something I will remind you from time to time is that John's Gospel is the fourth gospel, and it's just different than the first three. I mean, first of all, there's the whole synoptic thing, and I'll tell you what that means. The word synoptic sounds like a mouthful, but it means seeing something with the same view, which means that the first three are written very very similarly. As a matter of fact, Mark's gospel, the second gospel is the shortest, and 95% of Mark's gospel is found in Matthew and Luke. So they're really told the same way, and also with the same shape. Uh, In other words, the lens through which the first three see Jesus' story is really through the lens of the Passover. Jesus becomes the Passover lamb. When I take groups to the Holy Land, I like to start in the Galilee, just like the synoptics, and then travel down to Jerusalem, just like Jesus did uh, at, at the last uh, the last week of his life. In the in the third gospel, though, it's different. Uh, John's John's memory of Jesus centers on the city of Jerusalem. While the others spend more than half the story in the Galilee, John spends almost all the story in Jerusalem itself. And then even the festival's different. If the first three center on the Passover, John's gospel centers on Sukkot, which is the fall festival. It's the one where they built tents, and it was it was a lot of fun. It happened at the end of the year, and, and during Sukkot, you would pray for rain so that it would rain over the winter, and your crops would grow, and you won't die. Okay, there's more water. Another thing I would say is the first three Gospels are predominantly rural, meaning around the lake in the north, and John's is urban in the city. Okay, so there, there's, that, there's that thing. That makes John different. Still, if we go up 30,000 more feet, we will see a fundamental difference in a story like this one that I'm about to read from John chapter 8 and the stories that preceded in the Old Testament as well. So not just a contrast between John and the first three Gospels, but how about John and, and just the whole Old Testament, all the Hebrew Scriptures? Uh, what I'm trying to say that if you read the Old Testament, God's people are wondering and they're learning, even failing to do right, and maybe even suffering as a consequence. Uh, but when the curtain closes on Malachi, the last Hebrew prophet, and then nothing is said by God to, to them, at least according to the biblical record, right, to them for 400 years, and then we reopen with John the Baptist baptizing the wilderness and, and Jesus' arrival. When we, when we reopen 400 years later, the world is very different than the world of the Old Testament. I mean, this the world of this story in John is very different than the world of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, and simply put, in the world of Jesus, the problem was not that they weren't religious. It was almost as if they were too religious, more religious than God had intended, and not religious in that good way. Uh, it, it, to the point, when you get to the world of Jesus, here's where I'm trying to go. It, this story from John is a religion as a checked box kind of religion. It was less of a relationship and more just something that you did to keep your noses clean. Um, A good case in point is what they did with the Ten Commandments, right? Ten Commandments in the Old Testament became 613 commandments 
in the world of Jesus. And then they were fixated on one of these commandments in particular. Or I mean, like really fixated on one in particular. I'm thinking of the seventh commandment, and that's the one against adultery. Now, I know that that's an obvious a prohibition, but I think an analogy might help get us to what the what the message really was in the seventh commandment in terms of God's intention uh, for his children. Uh, we have this program at St. Luke's. I inherited it. The other large churches in our community do this as well, called Created by God. And when I got here 20 years ago, Created by God was a little more like health class for fifth and sixth graders. It was just to teach the kids how their bodies worked and how to be, you know, good good stewards of what God has uh, given you, and then also to to be made what it means to be made in God's image. This kind of stuff, and it was basically how things work. And my poor daughter, Betsy, was a fifth grader. We just moved to town, and her welcome to Birmingham was, you know, to go to Created by God, which just scarred the child, God bless her. You know, she didn't have any siblings to tell her it was coming, and, and we were new, and, and she didn't know anybody. And I remember I, I picked her up, and I said, how was it, Betsy? And she said, in the car, and she said, uh, I, I, I can't talk about it. <laughs> and it was just it was just pretty, pretty horrific. Well, it was necessary, horrific but necessary. Over 20 years, though, the trajectory or the lessons have changed because with the advent of the iPhone in 2007 and then the access that children have to the filth that's on the Internet, uh, just the ubiquity of pornography, uh, now we change the lesson from uh, how things work to people are not things. People are not things. They've been exposed to to the, the, the way that bodies work, of course, but now they're having to be taught that people aren't meant to be used or hurt in that way. This gets us close to the heart of the seventh commandment. People become things. Excuse, yeah, that people. So, so thou shalt not commit adultery means don't hurt people in this way and don't hurt yourself in this way. And remember that people are not to be objectified in this way, that, that people are not a one-off. They don't happen in a vacuum. They're systems, they're families, they're spouses, this sort of thing. And so that's the heart of the seventh commandment, which is union with your neighbor. Now, I will say that in time, in the especially in the desert wanderings, as, as God's people took the Ten Commandments and began to fashion a nation, uh, that idea, because God said it, thou shalt not commit adultery, I think because it was, I think their intention was, if God said it, we need to be really serious about it, it became a capital offense. Now, if you're just digging around in the Bible, I'm not going to read it, but Leviticus 20.20 and Deuteronomy 22 verses 13 through 24 are specific and graphic. And if you want to look it up, rock on, uh, but it'll tell you all you need to know about what happens to people when they get caught in adultery. Uh, and so it's, it's, it, it requires them to be murdered and all kinds of stuff that I really don't even want to talk about anymore. Now, what I'm about to read to you is a lovely forgiveness story that has its own problems. I'll talk about the problems in a minute, but let's just let's just steep ourselves in the story. Now that we have a little background on what they did with their religion or how Ten Commandments became 613 or how a checkbox religion could be very dangerous for people, let's read this story and see how God, through Jesus Christ, punches through with grace. This is John chapter 8, beginning with the first verse, and I'll read down to verse 11. It was early when Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, we are commanded to stone such women. Now what do you say? 
They said this to test him so that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, Let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away, one by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus straightened up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go on your way. And from now on, do not sin again. Well, it is a pretty story, but now we need to talk about the problems, and it's time for a little lesson in archaeology. The lesson is this. In archaeology, which is my, which is my passion, I, I would say, uh, the older a manuscript, the more valuable. Did you hear what I said? The older a manuscript, the more valuable. I, I got a good analogy for this. This is the Dead Sea Scrolls. In 1948, uh, some scrolls were found in caves down near the Dead Sea. Everybody got really excited. There have been lots of books you can walk walk through any big box bookstore and over in the religion section or the conspiracy section, and there'll be like secrets of the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, un, unearthed or all these kind of salacious, even uh, titles about the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, containing the, the mysteries of the end of the world. Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls have some pretty freaky stuff in them because they were written by kind of a freaky sect of people who lived down there, a monastic sect of people who lived uh, down by the Dead Sea and wrote them, but that's not why they're valuable. They're valuable because much of the Old Testament has been copied down from the first century, which means that Jesus read the same Bible. The older the manuscript, the more valuable. Uh, before the Dead Sea Scrolls, the earliest Old Testament manuscripts that we had would be something from, say, the fourth century. So now we've got something from the time of Jesus that we knew he read. He read the same Bible that we do. This is why manuscripts uh, or, or more valuable when you get closer to the primary source. Okay, so all that said, of the earliest manuscripts of John's gospel, here's our archaeology lesson here, which would mean that the earliest copies of John that we have date from the 4th to the 6th centuries. Only one of these manuscripts includes this story I just read to you. Uh, the Greek fathers, the, the ones who led that part of Christendom uh, in, that, in that time in history, they don't mention this story. They don't teach on this story. It's not in their Bible. The Syrian, the Coptics, the Egyptians, they don't mention it. And yet Jerome, who was a Roman a Roman Catholic Christian or a Latin Catholic Christian, uh, he did include this story in his Vulgate version of the Bible, which was a Latin version of the Bible in the 4th century. It's interesting um, that the, the most important medieval book of Western Christendom would be written down in Bethlehem. I, I, I will take groups to Bethlehem, and I will tell you that the, the, you go to the Church of the Nativity, which commemorates the birthplace of Jesus, and the line to go touch the little silver star where Jesus is supposed to be buried, I mean, born, rather, um, it takes three and a half hours on a, on a average day, and it's just not worth it. I mean, it's not worth three and a half hours. I, I look at the crowds, and I, my, at my group, and I look at the crowds, and I say, look, trust me, guys, it's, it's not worth that thrill. It's just a little silver star. But we can go to a, an adjacent church, over the same series of caves, knowing that Jesus could have been born in any of these. I mean, any cave can be a, a manger, a, a place for a manger. Any cave can be a place for animals. And so we go to an adjacent cave, which is very close to the one that people are waiting three and a half hours for, and we can go down there. And then I get to come a little bonus story, because in this cave, Jerome wrote the Vulgate Bible, and he wrote down this story in John's Gospel. So that's kind of 
kind of cool that such an important historical book was written in, in a place where you get a little surprise you get a little surprise ticket there when you're looking for Jesus and you see something else. So that happened in Bethlehem. Other Latin fathers of the church, like Augustine and Ambrose, other fourth century late Roman people, they comment on the story. So the story's mentioned, it's just not mentioned in the Greek version of the story. Some older manuscripts even put the story in Luke. But my favorite comes from a church historian named Eusebius, another late Roman who tells the story of a bishop who quotes this story around the year 100. So I think it's real. I think it belongs in John's gospel. But what's the deal? Why is it so hard to find among the ancient manuscripts? Well, I think Augustine probably said it best in his own commentaries. This forgiveness of the woman in the act of committing adultery is a great scandal perhaps such a hot potato, that they all avoided it. I've got a, an analogy that might help. The book of Hebrews, in the back of our Bible, we will traditionally say Paul's letter to the Hebrews, and we read it, but Paul didn't write it. We don't know who wrote it, actually. And Hebrews is different in that it's very elegant Greek. It's a tightly formed uh, apology for, for Jesus Christ and, and the, as a fulfillment of the, of the promises, if you will, the Messiah, all that stuff. Uh, but no one knows who read it. I mean, it's such a lockdown mystery that my seminary professors looked at this carefully, and they believe that it was written by a woman. Paul had friends, Priscilla and Aquila. And it's interesting that that we say Priscilla and Aquila in the Bible as opposed to Aquila and Priscilla, because normally in a Roman, in a Roman world, the man would always be named first. But Priscilla was generous, and she was kind, and she was smart, and she was rich. And she used her resources to start churches, and she had an education. And my professors believe that Priscilla wrote the letter to the Hebrews. It's just that it was such a scandal that a woman would write that they could not let anyone know. I think something is similar might, may have been happening with ancient manuscripts in this story. Well, let's look at it, John chapter 8. Um, they bring this pitiful person, but interestingly enough, not the man. Got it? Now, if you were to look at Leviticus and Deuteronomy, both are stoned for committing adultery, but they only bring the woman. So they bring this pitiful person, but not the man, to Jesus. And then I also want you to remember that Sukkot is the fall festival, and it involves lots of tents and lots of drinking wine. And I can only imagine this is not the first time that this problem happened if somebody wandered into somebody else's tent. This is a very adult story and an adult problem. And in response, Jesus draws on the ground. Now, there's been much speculation over the centuries about this writing on the ground. What was he writing? I've heard lots of sermons on this. I've, I've, I've heard sermons that maybe he was writing down the names of all the people uh, who had accused her. That, that certainly would be uh, poetic and just. Uh, I've heard that Jesus was just buying time, thinking about how to wiggle out of this trap. But we have a clue to the answer, and it's found in the book of Numbers, a book we don't go to very often, Numbers chapter 5. And I want to read something to you because it has to do with water. Now, Sukkot is a festival that has to do with water, but this drawing on the dust, the drawing in the dust in the face of adultery also has to do with water. This is Numbers chapter 5, verse 16. Then the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. What I just read to you was a test over whether someone had committed adultery or not. You bring the person accused, and they're given a chance to say, I did it or I didn't do it. And if it said, I didn't do it, 
then what, what the priest does is takes the dust of the tabernacle floor, the dust of the holy place, and puts it into water, and then she drinks it. Now, I'm going to paraphrase this, but basically, if she gets an upset stomach, she committed adultery, which I'm pretty sure that anytime you drink a bowl full of dirt, you're going to end up upset stomach. So that doesn't sound very fair to me. That sounds like the Salem witch trial, but that's a, that's another that's another problem. We'll just have to I'll have to ask Moses about that when I go to heaven. Uh, but here here's my take. Jesus, when he puts his finger in the dust of the temple, is assuming the authority of a priest. He's assuming the authority of someone who can call judgment upon her. They're all waiting for the other shoe to drop because he's now taking the dust that would have been put into the water, and then he drops the bomb. Let anyone among you without sin cast the first stone. And actually, if you look at the text carefully, the Greek would suggest, let any of you without a sinful thought cast the first stone. It's a revealing story, and it's remarkably honest. The Pharisees, they were treating her as a thing. And remember the origin of the seventh commandment? People are not things. No, rather, God is not a God of things, but the God of people, and especially the God of names. Names. Uh, They didn't even know her name. And in their religion, names are so important. In Exodus, Moses knows God's name, and God calls Moses by name. Read Jeremiah sometime. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 1, before you were in the womb, I knew you. I knew your name. The, the conclusion is this. God knows us and sees us and sees when we hurt and sees when we're afraid and sees when we're scared and sees when we've made mistakes and brings us home. They didn't even know her name. This lesson of Jesus here shouldn't have been a hot potato. Jesus taught it again and again. Uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, judge not lest you be judged or don't look at the speck in your neighbor's eye until you to you look in the plank in your own eye. I mean, he says it on and again and again and again. But he also says to the woman here, go, go and sin no more. Now, this might sound a little, little like a warning, or something, something maybe a little more uh, prudish, if you will. Uh, no, no. What we mean by this and what Jesus means by this is that go and sin no more. Go and, and don't be hurt anymore. Sin separates. Sin separates us from other people. Now, now, this woman can go back to the land of the living. It is a lovely story. It is a restoration story. And it's a hopeful story for all of us because we all know of those times when we found ourselves utterly alone by our own choices, our own mistakes. And yet God forgives us, heals us, brings us back to the family. So it leaves me with a question. Um, And and this is how I want to ask us to consider it. How can our religion be more of a relationship and less of a checked box? How have we used people as things? Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.